everyone? We get to be in God's Word today. <laughs> Go Bengals. Go Rams. Yeah, all right, all right. Go Niners. Uh, okay. And then the rest of you. Go Broncos. Man, Chris isn't here. Whatever. All right. So, hey. We're continuing our series in the book of Acts, the actions of the apostles by the Holy Spirit. Today we will study God and His power being seen through the apostles and the need that we have to be restored, not just physically, but spiritually through the work of God. Often when we come to God's Word, we need to know there are some tensions that don't always fit into a dogmatic view of things. Now, even saying that, I think there are some things that don't get to be gray areas, Jesus being God with skin, God being three persons, yet one God, the gospel of grace that God saves through the gift of His Son's finished work, and our receiving of grace through faith to be justified by Jesus, not by what we do or by being a good person, but by what Jesus has already accomplished for us. This is something that we major in as a church. But I think humanity is really good at majoring in minor things and not knowing what is of first importance because we are so enamored with minor things that become ultimate. Today, we will see the first public miracle of the Holy Spirit done through the apostles. And from what we know, there are many other miracles and moments that took place as we read the past few weeks. We were told there were others that were not specifically documented but this was documented so we could know something more about our God. So while there are prescriptions in this passage or applications, we ought to first look at this from the descriptive point of view of what actually happened. So I want to show you something. What's this? Okay, it's not an iPhone. It's a box that an iPhone comes in. All right, that's what this is. It is the packaging for an iPhone. And I'll tell you what, Apple absolutely knows what they're doing when it comes to packaging products. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm excited about the box, like a little kid who doesn't even need a present, just needs, you know, uh, packaging. But what we will see today is the packaging often gets confused for the gift, and we miss it. We miss what God is doing, we miss seeing the bigger picture, and unfortunately for some, they miss Jesus altogether. Often I think that our majoring in the minors, missing the forest for the trees, and focusing on the packaging rather than the gift is something that is so true, and we will read today about this specifically. So my ask for each of you, and I don't know all of you personally, is this, don't miss it. Even though spiritually many of us will not have the ears to hear or eyes to see, I'm beginning with this disclaimer hoping that it will help. So here we go, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Acts. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. One day. Luke is writing the book of Acts, and he doesn't specifically say how long after Pentecost, this festival, uh, celebrating God and what he had done at Passover 50 days later, but it's another day. And probably not the next day, as that might have been communicated if that were the case. Probably some time has passed from when the church had gone from about 120 people who had believed in Jesus to more than 3,000 after Peter preached at Pentecost, and these 3,000 started to build community together. One day, Peter and John, two well-known apostles who were disciples of Jesus, were traveling along together. And where did they head? The temple. 
And it's the time of prayer, which for the Orthodox Jew in this context was something that happened three times a day. And this being the afternoon portion is when these two disciples made their way to the temple courts. Much of what I studied as I studied this passage focused on the temple and the amount of entrances. I believe there were ten. And the adornment of gold and lavish looks of this temple that was built by Herod in roughly 36 B.C. And it's known to many as Herod's Temple. Now, the disciples had just experienced the movement of the Holy Spirit coming and preaching through Peter this very unseeker-sensitive sermon, you all killed Jesus, but God raised him to life, and many were cut to the heart and repented. And yet, we will read later in the book of Hebrews, not today, but if you continue to read in the New Testament, you'll read in the book of Hebrews chapter 9 that the temple is no longer necessary for believers to attend in order to be near God's presence. Paul confirms this when speaking of the fact of the presence of God was no longer built, uh, found in a temple built by hands. In Acts 17, verse 24, as he's speaking, defending his understanding of what Jesus had accomplished, he said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. But now that the veil has been torn at Jesus' death on the cross, and that He has physically risen from the dead. He has ascended. He has, he has sent the Holy Spirit. The temple where God's presence now resides is where? Here. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? But the apostles are yet to have this be revealed to them. So the apostles are continuing to go to the temple, as we studied last week, to break bread, to fellowship, to worship, to pray, and be devoted to the apostles' teaching. They met together. Some could see this as, well, they've always done this, so they're continuing to do what they've always done. But I actually think it's something significantly more deep than this. It's more meaningful because the Christian faith, don't miss this, is one of faithfulness. Faithfulness to obedience, even if and when we don't understand all the reasoning behind the obedience. In fact, when rooted in obedience to God's Word, that is actually what faith is. And what James, the brother, half-brother of Jesus, points out when he speaks of faith without works being dead. So if it's not by our works, and this is something we try to harp on almost every single week because we believe the Bible harps on this, if it's not about our weak works, if it's not about our obedience that justifies us at all, it's that grace, getting what we do not deserve, is received by faith. What's faith? Well, see, faith works, meaning it has an action attached to it. You can say you believe in something, but if you're unwilling to be moved by it, it's probably not faith. So for the spiritually blind, we can see the work of faith taking place and assume the work is what justifies us, but it isn't. Faith is the response to grace making sense. And even if it doesn't make sense to everyone else, when we are obedient for the right reasons, when our motives are because we want to glorify God, there's a sense of joy and love for God that comes from doing what God says, abstaining from the things that He says not to do, and being someone who is choosing not to allow our sin to continue to impede our intimacy with Him. I think there are a few filters that I've grown, as, as I've been growing as a Christian, that I've, as I've grown in my trust, in my love, in my obedience to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is this filter that has become more clear, more alive, and relevant in my life. 
But it didn't come all at once. I didn't just become a Christian and then everything made sense. It is this daily dying to myself and learning from the mistakes that are often sin and through repentance and through changing direction and refocusing on Christ and His work. And so this, this filter is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It is preeminent. It is more involved in how I read the Bible than anything else. I read ahead, Jesus wins. <laughs> but also, His winning what he's done, what he's accomplished, is what justifies me, not all my good works, not my devotion, not even my faith exercised is what saves me. It's Jesus and his grace alone by him adopting me because he is good. Now, that's a specific filter that when I read the Word of God, when I read the Bible, I see it with the gospel in mind. And if that's not in my mind, honestly, when I read the scriptures, they don't make that much sense. And secondly, there's another filter or a theme, if you will, that I see God hitting over and over in the 66 different letters in the Bible through 40 different authors written over 1,500 years in three different continents and three different languages, and it's this, that God's worldview is faithfulness. God's worldview is faithfulness. You can call it a worldview. You can call it a perspective. You can call it a position. But whatever it is, faithfulness is God's worldview. And so it says that as uh, Peter and John were going to the temple, that they went and did what they always did by going to the temple. They were faithful to keep doing what they were supposed to be doing until the Lord opened a new door for them. F.B. Meyer once put it this way, don't waste your time waiting and longing for large opportunities which may never come, but faithfully handle the little things that are always claiming your attention. And Jesus, as John is writing in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, 7 through 8, he's speaking to the church in Philadelphia. Eugene, you're welcome. And these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, Jesus says. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, but don't miss it. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, there is a faithfulness attached to this church. Being faithful with the little and consistent is more important to our following of Jesus than we realize. Now, we live in Silicon Valley, a place where innovation and new and exciting things, especially in technology, is celebrated, and it's almost expected every day. But in the kingdom, God does not rush because he doesn't need to. He doesn't just know about tomorrow. God is already in tomorrow. He is never surprised. He not only has a plan, but he has a will to fulfill his plan to completion. And so our willingness by faith to trust him at his word in the day-to-day -to, -day, to do what he says until he says something different is the key to our Christian walk. Obedience for the right reasons is love for the Lord, and a consistent obedience led by the Holy Spirit is faithfulness. Now, let me just make it simple, especially in the Bay Area. This might not hit the same way it would hit somewhere else, but hear this. God doesn't call us to effectiveness. He calls us to faithfulness, something impossible without Him being involved. And all of that, as I just talked a lot, was covering one verse, so we should probably speed up. Verse 2, here we go. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful 
where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now, this man could not walk since birth, and he was being carried and placed in front of one of the ten gates. This gate was known as beautiful in front of the temple courts. He was placed there as a beggar to attempt to receive money from those who were going into the temple. Now, this man probably within this culture could not hold down a job like others, like farming and fishing and other labor-intensive professions. They were not something he physically could do, so he would sit and beg each day as people would go into the temple hoping that the God-fearing people in Jerusalem would provide for his needs. Okay. Now, without missing the forest for the trees, I think it's really easy to focus on the physical needs of this individual to key in on what was his need. And we as believers, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have identified with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension, if you call yourself a child of God, we ought to care for the needs of our fellow men and women and children. So don't hear me wrong. We absolutely should care for others. But, but, this passage isn't about social reform or caring for the needy. This letter, this Bible, is about bringing restoration of relationship between a sinful people like us and a perfect and holy God named Jesus. So, there's this tension. In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, James puts it this way, "'What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save them?' Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, there's nuance in this passage, because specifically James says brothers and sisters, which refers to another believer specifically, but he still points out what we ought not just say we want someone to be taken care of if we have the resources to actually help ourselves to help them. So, even though this passage talks about doing something for someone else, it is referring to faith, which is a byproduct of grace and our relationship with God and the evidence of such faith. So, it's hard for people It's hard for people to understand that we are not saved by works. We are not saved by what we do. We are not justified by dressing nice and coming to church. We are not saved by good deeds, but that the faith that we have in Christ and what He has done for us actually leads us to do something. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica, and he says, we remember you before our God and Father, your, hear this, work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let me get clear with works. Works, what you do, are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. Things that you do are the fruit of faith, not the root of faith. So, when we give, it's we're giving in response to the grace that we've received, rather than attempting to earn back or pay a gift back to the Lord that He has given to us. And so, as Paul says to the Thessalonians, their work produced by faith, not faith produced by work. Now, we as a church, and I think you know this if you've been attending here for a little while, we are not into a social gospel. 
Comfort is not our motive. In fact, the gospel tends to make people feel uncomfortable. It tends to. But sharing the gospel and living lives in a manner that are worthy of the gospel, as Paul points out, is where we actually notice that we are not perfect. We have faults. We do things wrong, and yet we can point to a Savior who did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Often people think that unless we do nice things for people, we don't love them. I'm not saying I'm against being kind or helpful, but I'm against only being kind and helpful and finding any justification before the Lord in what I do. So all of that to say this, caring for others' needs is a symptom of our salvation not a stimulant for it. It's a symptom of our salvation. And what we will see is that while God through Peter and John do heal this man who could not walk, our physical needs will always play second fiddle to our spiritual needs in the kingdom of God. So while speaking to his disciples about what it takes to be his disciple, Jesus says this in Matthew 16. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my follower, my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Earlier on in Matthew, Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount says it this way, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that passage is very easily used, and all of a sudden we'd ask Malik to come up and play the guitar and then pass a bag and be like, hey, you need to give towards the kingdom. But that's not the point of this. The point is that we ought to live our lives investing in the next life more than we currently are, because so often we think that this is the only life that we get. So while the world is attempting to gain every advantage, attempting to get ahead, attempting to possibly fulfill fulfill the American dream, Jesus says that we ought to invest in the kingdom, not just monetarily, but with our time, by faith, because it will not decay. It will not be taken from us. And as we studied the book of John for 642 years, a point that seemed to be made over and over and over again was that many, many who were attempting to argue with Jesus took what he said to be physical rather than spiritual, and so they could never understand his meaning and did not have the ears to hear or the eyes to see what he meant. When we are focused on the wrapping paper rather than the gift inside, we can absolutely perverse the meaning and the point of what is being written and said. So, let me give you an example. About, I don't know, I was, I had just moved out on my own, so I was like, uh, I, I was 17 at the time. I lived in a different time than most of you. And, and I was 17, I had just moved out of my house, and I had gotten a roommate, and my stepdad, who lived in L.A., and I would mail each other presents uh, for Christmas, and my stepdad, I believe it was Christmas, mailed me a package, and I remember I got it. He wasn't in front of me, and I don't know what you guys are like when you open packages, but the person isn't in front of you, but I'm kind of quick to be like, oh, cool, and then I move on, right? And so I got the package, and I unwrapped it, and I saw the box, and it was a lamp. And I was like, oh, it's a lamp. Okay, cool. And, you know, I'm not going to play with a lamp, but I didn't need a lamp that moment, so I went, okay, cool, and I took the box, and I put it in the closet. 
And then about a year later, I was like, oh man, it's kind of dark in my room, I need a lamp. And so I went into the closet and I found the box and I was like, oh cool. And so I open it, it was a watch. He just put it in a lamp box. It was a really nice watch that did not light up my room at all. <laughs> I mean, a little, you like press the button, anyway. And I was so focused on the packaging, I missed what the gift actually was. And we can do the same thing when we read God's Word. We can read it with this expectation, oh, he's talking about this, or he wants, he wants us to just be a better person. No, 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 let me, let me give you, let me give you uh, the decoder ring. He wants you to know him. That's what this is about. It's about trusting Him at His Word and knowing Him personally. It's not about what you do, which means a lot of different things that we can do religiously. It's about who you know and what He's done for us. Being in ministry for what I think is around two decades now, wow, I'm absolutely still blown away by how often people look the part say the right words, and yet miss the point. I've known leaders in the church, elders in the church, who represent and care for the church of the living God and have served faithfully for years, still believe that the purpose of the church is to be what the IRS would consider a humanitarian organization rather than a religious 501c3, which is a church. Because doing good for others seems to be the point for many rather than making known that Jesus is the Christ and being loving to others out of the abundance of love that we've received through what Christ has done for us. See, that's what we want to do here. We want to love others, but we don't want to love others to justify ourselves. We want to love others because God justified us and He first loved us and we then can love others. Church, I hope that we can strive to be like the church in Thessalonica, known for their love, which prompts us to care for others and serve others. So, all of that to basically set the scene. There is a beggar who could not walk. He's asking for money from the passer-buyers. And then verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Verse 4, Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us! I don't know if he said it that loud. Peter says to this beggar, look at us. Focus your attention on what I'm about to say. Something that Jesus seemed to do based on the Gospels, he didn't have passive conversations. Peter and John, like Jesus, get, would get those who he was talking to's attention. Because what is about to happen is not something that can or should be ignored. Look at us. Focus your attention. Eyes up here. I know they're nice cowboy boots, but eyes up here, okay? Pay attention. Verse 5, so the man gave them his attention expecting to get something from them. Luke writes that this beggar expected to get something from them. It might just sound like this throwaway statement, but I think it's much deeper than that. So let me get practical with us. For those of us who attend church regularly, they're trying to grow in our relationship with God. How often do we focus our attention on Christ and pray? And you're like, every night, good for you. But pray without the expectation that God will do anything about our requests. See, many of us do pray daily, nightly, but we don't expect God to actually provide the prayers that we request. 
Let me take it a step further. How often do we come to God's Word and open it or, you know, turn it on onto our phone without the expectation of receiving anything after we hear the actual words of God? Now, God's Word is living and active, as the writer of Hebrews says. He says, for the, God, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And if what the writer of Hebrews says is true, then the Word written by the Spirit of God reveals the will of God, helping us in our relationship with the Son of God, really ought to be something that we have an expectation for that would change us every time we open and read the Word. Why? Because it's living and active. And we tend to read it with new eyes because we ought to be growing in love and obedience and knowledge of the Son of God through reading His Word. And yet even that doesn't justify us, only Jesus does. So Peter and John command these beggars, this beggar's attention, and he expected to receive something from them. Maybe we have specific expectations of being part of or attending church that are also misaligned with God's Word. Let me, let me be clear about why we do this, why we keep the doors open, if you will, why some of us get here pretty early to set up and make sure that this is available for us to come and be together on a Sunday morning. It's to bring glory to God. That's why. To have the opportunity to worship, not just in music, but in the reading of God's Word, in prayer, in being together, to lift up the name of Jesus, to build community of people together who aren't all the same socially. Look around real quick. You're not all the same socially, economically, spiritually, or even physically. And I think too often we think that church exists for us when the church exists for God. And we get to be part of his family, gathered together to make much of him. Listen, I, I, I might be the lead pastor here at this church, but I need church. I need community to be a place where I am encouraged and convicted and challenged and served and cared for and held accountable. Church isn't for my glory, and it's not for your glory. It's for the Lord's glory, and being part of it together is one of the most important parts of our Christian lives, and it's not just Sunday morning, but in community throughout the week. But we got to expect that God is going to be glorified every time we gather. We have to expect that God's going to challenge and possibly change us every time we gather. We have to expect that maybe, just maybe, He'll convict us every time we gather. Verse 6, then Peter, said this to, uh, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. This is actually what the elders said to me when I asked for a raise. <laughs> kidding, <laughs> kidding. They ghosted me. No, kidding, kidding. I'm very well compensated and I can already walk. Thank you. And Peter and John are focusing not on the, this man's request, but on his need just not the need that most of us would assume that this man has. Did he want to walk? I'm sure. I'm sure he wanted to walk more than anything, but he was expecting money. And Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Holy Son, sees this man healed physically, which is going to create a much bigger deal than just a man being healed from his handicap in Jerusalem. Verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. 
Luke writes that this healing was instantaneous. Peter led the beggar by his hand, and instantly his feet and ankles became strong. This is probably the craziest moment for this man in his entire life, who has never even learned how to walk, and is now, by faith in the name of Jesus, having this new creation experience. I can't imagine the jubilation that this man is feeling. Possibly when my wife said yes to marrying me, maybe that's close for me. Possibly when I saw each of my children being born, but I don't, I don't know specifically what this experience is like for him, but I'm sure that there was excitement, awe, shock, and praise all at once. Verse 8, he jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. He jumped to his feet. He's never walked before. He's never done this. He probably has only seen others do this. But in his excitement, in this moment of life change that is so extreme, so beautiful, so awe-inspiring, he couldn't contain his joy. But he didn't just walk. He leapt. Luke points out that he was praising God. I could imagine him being like, can you believe that after all of these years I can walk? Look, I need shoes now. Look, look at what I can do. Woo! He is so pumped. Or at least I'm pumped for him. And it is by his God that this can happen. God healed him. This Jesus of Nazareth, this man from a lonely place that we heard had been crucified, that people saw alive three days later, who we were told had ascended to heaven, he was the one who healed him, and praise be unto his name. Verse 9, when all the people, and I bet you a lot of people knew this guy, saw him walking and praising God, they were like, they recognized him. As the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. Now, I, I read ahead, so it's kind of cheating, but guess what? God heals this man not just so he would worship him. He healed him as an illustration of God's power and glory. And the people saw this, and they were astonished. We saw astonished in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Their minds were blown. This is the same guy, as far as they knew, who never knew how to walk, and here he is doing cartwheels, that's my assumption, in front of the temple. So what just happened? I'll tell you what happened. God made a new creation in this man. He is born again. Not because he memorized the law or because he got baptized in a fountain. This man has been made new through the work of the Spirit of God. And by believing in the name that's above every name, which is Jesus, he has been changed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone believes unto the name of Jesus, if anyone identifies themselves with Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone, the new is here. Being a new creation means we are new, not updated. We are a brand new person. So church, if you've trusted Jesus, embrace the fact that God has changed you eternally. But this doesn't mean that we won't fail like we used to. It means we don't have to fail like we used to because we are new and God has the power to transform us. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ 
and gave us, those of us who have trusted Jesus, the minister, ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Hallelujah, because I've been sinful since I got here this morning. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, as we will continue the story that will take place over the next two Sundays as we preach through this passage, we will see that this man became an ambassador for Jesus, not because he was healed, but because he was restored into relationship with Jesus. Verse 20 of 2 Corinthians 5, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We rep Jesus. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation has always been the point of God's story through his word, through this book, through the Bible. Max Lucado said it this way, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. Our greatest need is forgiveness. So God sent us a Savior. All have sinned, me especially, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I'm going to end, and I'll invite the worship team up in just a moment. But I want to end with a bit of an observation and a question I have about this specific passage, these 10 verses that we read today. Did you notice that Luke points out earlier on that this lame beggar sat at the temple gate to beg every day? I believe this implies that this had been happening for a very long time. This beggar was probably very well known by those who attended the temple Many saw him three times a day, every day of the week. You know, I wonder why Jesus didn't heal this man himself. I'm convinced that Jesus saw him on many occasions. So why didn't Jesus just heal this man? He could have. Jesus had the power, and obviously this man had the faith. But I wonder if this is a beautiful explanation, an illustration of God handling things in His perfect timing. Don't, don't miss this. In a way that brings glory and honor to Him in His perfect timing, rather than the effective ways that man can create in their own imaginations. How often have we attended church and just been like, oh man, I wish my so-and-so was here to hear that. Hey, you know what? God knows what He's doing. Relax. I wonder if this man had a date with his Lord not through an interaction with Jesus in the flesh, but through the apostles who were ambassadors for Christ and were indwelled by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I wonder if Jesus put off healing this man because there was a date and a time and a specific people who God was going to use to be involved in this miracle, not because God needed the apostles but because what we will read and study over the next two weeks, what happened through the apostles by the Holy Spirit shook up Jerusalem. And even more people came to faith in Jesus Christ through the miracle performed in the passage that we studied today. Church, I wonder if that gives you confidence today. I wonder if that gives us more faith to trust God at His Word. 
I wonder if to be continually faithful in the day-to-day, that out of our faithfulness of being a believer in Jesus, knowing full well that God's plan and work will be done in His perfect timing, and it will be good because He is good, even when it isn't the way that we would do it if we were God. I wonder if some of us today come here expecting God to do something, and we start to lose faith in Him because He's not doing it in the timetable that we want Him to do it in. Maybe he's not jumping to do things in our timing, yet he may want to produce in us a faithfulness, perseverance, and trust for him in spite of our impatience. So, worship team, why don't you come on up? And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Uh, Worship team's going to get set and get ready. I'm going to ask those of you that are sitting in the pews. In front of you, there are a bunch of cards. The tallest card that you probably see says prayer card in it. I'm going to ask you to grab one. And, and you don't have to do anything with this, but I'm going to give you this option. Grab the prayer card. Grab one of the pens that we have. Take the pens. We have thousands of them. And I want you to write down maybe that little step of faith that God is asking you to do. Too often we're so caught up in the, man, I need to go and move overseas and sell everything I have and do all this and that, when God's like, no, 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 I just want you to go share with your neighbor who I am. What's that little step of obedience that maybe you've been putting off? And I'd ask you to think about it. Malik, Laura, Laura's going to play because piano's, you know, super holy. She's going to play for just a moment. And then they'll start to sing the song. But I want you to have a moment to think, what is that next step of obedience? It might be minute. It might be little. It might be nothing. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to write it on the card, and I want you to use it as a bookmark in your Bible. And if you want to be held accountable for it, if you feel, no, I got this, I don't need it to be a bookmark in my Bible, I want someone to hold me accountable, you write your name on that and you drop it in the box as you leave where the offering is taken. But we want you to think about that next step of obedience. Because so often in the church of the living God, we're so focused on His coming back, if you will, and our being a part of that somehow. When we're forgetting to just be faithful in the small, because God wants to grow each and every single one of us in our obedience and faith in Him. I'm going to pray. Laurel will play for 30 seconds while you write, and then we'll respond in musical worship by singing. Father, I thank You for the opportunity we have this morning to be around Your Word. God, I thank You as we begin this passage in Acts 3, as we will study over the next few weeks of what happened as this man was healed in the power of Your name through the work of Your Spirit. God, I pray that we would see that you are at work, that you are calling us to faithfulness, to obedience, to the small and big, but too often we ignore the small because we're too focused on the big. So God, would you use this time for your glory? Would you bring to mind the things that maybe you want us to step out in faith and do, no matter how little or minute? We thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.